This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, I head to Hollywood Hills, California to spend a couple days with comedian and stunt performer Stephen Glover, also known as Steve-O. Whether you're a fan of Steve-O or about to learn of his wild stunts for the first time, I think you'll appreciate his journey of perseverance and triumph. He talks us through the feeling of finding stardom after the release of MTV's Jackass. The very next day after it aired, my life was totally different. Risking his life for fame and fortune. I was under the impression that my job that day was to get bitten by an alligator. And his battles with drug and alcohol addiction. I leaned over to do another line of cocaine, and I remember thinking, like, I don't care if I die. But first, we begin this 2019 interview with a conversation about Steve-O's pursuits as a stand-up comedian. So, comedy. Uh, what excited you in the first place about going on stage without having to do a stunt to make people laugh? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Oh, really? It wasn't my idea to try comedy the first time. I was asked to do it by somebody who uh, wanted me to do a stunt. And I said, yeah, sure. And I showed up uh, at the comedy club with no plan at all. And looking around, it just occurred to me that uh, I couldn't do anything crazier than actually get on that stage and try to make people laugh like doing stand-up. How did it feel when you went on stage for that first time? The first time it was just shocking to me how uh, welcomed I was. I mean, people were excited to see me. Um, they were interested in what I had to say. The crowd was, was rooting for me. I felt a genuine sense that the crowd was rooting for me to do well and they just want to have a good time. So before uh, I left the comedy club that night, I scheduled my return. Oh, did you? I did. And before I came back, I actually like, wrote out an act, you know, like uh, with jokes and, it, you know, did like 10 minutes when I came back and filmed it. And I was pretty happy with it. God, this is like the most frustrating thing. And, and if, I, if I have a regret, this would be it, was that I wrote this act and, and it went reasonably well. And then and I filmed doing it. And having done that, I determined that I needed to, to retire that material. For some reason in my mind, I needed to do something different every time I went on that stage. Whereas mm -hmm. if I would have uh, just worked on that act and, and developed it and honed it, then uh, I would have really been like doing stand-up for a lot longer than I actually have now. But instead, I became confident. I went back with, with nothing prepared. So I thought, I'm just good at this. And I went on stage with no material, and I just uh, bombed, <laughs> you know? It was just a desperately traumatic experience. <laughs> it was awful. Well, okay, but that means what specifically? Like, what, uh, what, what do you remember seeing, hearing when that's Just like, you know, where, just this, I mean, you start off and the crowd just wants to have a good time, and they're rooting for you. But if you're not, like, delivering anything that really contributes to them having a good time, then uh, it, it becomes very awkward. And I think that they're visibly offended. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and being this hypersensitive, like, you know, overly concerned with the opinions of others type person, uh, yeah, it's, it was traumatic. And then I had another bad experience after that. Then and, your next time uh -huh. doing stand-up? 
Yeah, so all my beginner's luck really wore off. What what happened that time? I I can't okay. remember. I think what like uh, I, I was I was out of control on drugs. It okay. was uh, a big part of it, and um, I had recorded some rap song, and I went and in the comedy club, and I had them play the rap song, and I was like, I thought it was really cool. Nobody else did. Uh, nothing was funny about the uh, entire episode, and. Um, yeah, so my feelings were hurt, and I wanted to um, just like crawl under a rock. And uh, ultimately, I got sober um, a couple years later, and then there was just no reason for me to go to a, a nightclub or a bar. That was just off the table, but there was every reason for me to go to a comedy club. Uh -huh. So that became a go-to activity, like whenever... Uh, you know, I was like, oh, let's go do something. Like, it was regular to go to the comedy club. And what made you motivated to go back after you had a couple bad experiences? Well, in early sobriety, sitting in the comedy club just to watch the show, I just had this, like, feeling like, oh, I should do it. I should get on that stage. I should, that, ugh. And um, it just kind of built up. And we were filming uh, the third Jackass movie. Um, and when I went in for my very first interview, like before all the real promotional machine revved up, um, I, I was to be interviewed immediately after Dane Cook. And, and so I walked in there, I met him, it was, you know, perfectly nice. And, and I said to him, uh, man, I've, I've dabbled in stand-up before and I really want to dive in. And he ended up mentoring you kind of, yeah. right? He said, uh, he said, cool, man, like, I'll give you my number. We'll get you on stage next week. And I went on stage like two comics after Sarah Silverman and immediately before Dane Cook. I was so nervous. And, um, you know, I, I went, then Dane Cook went, and then immediately after his set, he sits down with me to give me notes on, on my performance. That's cool. And uh, you see, he said that it was all about, uh, you know, the delivery of it. And I was just so you know, tense and nervous. He says, you've got to relax, dude. Mm -hmm. You've got to relax. And um, that was, I believe, on a Wednesday night. The following Friday, two days later, I, I, on my own initiative, I go, I'm at the Laugh Factory now to, to go and try it again. It just so happened that Dane Cook was there as well. And uh, by coincidence, I went and then he went and then he sat down with me and gave me notes again. And uh, he said... Um, all right, now you're too relaxed, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, now you're like tr trying to be relaxed. He said, uh, you gotta remember that this is a performance. You know, you need to be uh, like an animated version of yourself. You gotta have some energy. So it was like, I was in this weird uh, Dane Cook, like, you know, mentor thing. Right. Just the fact that he took his time to take me under his wing, like was just put so much wind in my sails. And then, Jackass 3D came out. That day, uh, I was on Howard Stern. I said to Howard Stern, I'm in the comedy club every night, man. I'm doing stand-up and I'm loving it. And I want to do a gig in New York tonight. And uh, because I said that, uh, my lawyer ended up calling me uh, maybe a week or two later. He said, he said, I don't know what happened, but I'm getting calls from all over the country. Everybody wants to book you. Uh, doing stand-up. 
That's great. So now all of a sudden, like, you know, Jackass 3D is in the movie theaters. I didn't even have an agent. Uh, and, um, you know, I met with this one agency, you know, this, this hotshot dude. He says, I, you know, I know we don't represent you yet, but I did, uh, you know, a couple of phone calls just to poke around. And if you were interested in signing with us, I have this. And he plops this folder on the uh, the table, and in in it was official formal offers from comedy clubs all over the. It was like a full entire headlining tour of <laughs> comedy clubs. Like there were, uh, with all the offers combined, like it was well into the six figures of uh, like guarantees. You know, like, and, and here I am. I've got like, eh, you know, fifteen minutes. 20 if I like really want <laughs> right. and, to. And I just went off on this career and I just kind of learned as I went. Um, and, and I was so passionate about it. And then uh, about a year later, I'd show up at the Laugh Factory. I'd bump into Dan Cook. He goes, where have you been, man? And I said, uh, dude, since I saw you last, I've uh, headlined shows in like 11 different countries. <laughs> and he just goes, he just laughs. And he goes, oh man, comics must f***ing hate you. <laughs> you know, like, um, and, and overall that's not been my experience. I think, you know, for the most part, there's been very little uh, animosity towards me doing stand-up from comics that I've been aware of. Um, conversation with, like I guess the Netflix uh, comedy head and um, the the challenges with that no. dialogue would be what? It's, it's so frustrating, man. After my first special came out and I put together a new act, it occurred to me one night, wow, all these stories that I'm telling transpired initially on camera. So what if I had a stand-up comedy act that had the footage of the stories I'm telling edited into sure it. it would be a multimedia comedy special and that's just never happened and uh and I just got so excited about it there's nothing like it out there and um and uh I ended up at the end of the day I spent like two hundred and sixty two thousand dollars on the the final product thinking that this is and I had the entire uh and I and I had the entire jackass cast together for the opening sequence. Uh -huh. First time that all these guys have been together in like eight years. And they duct tape me to the side of a big billboard truck. Knoxville hits baseballs at me like so outlandishly too hard where there's <laughs> just coming right in my head and like baseballs. <laughs> and then, then we like set off and drive this truck with me taped to the side down the highway you know like we didn't stop until we were uh just about in in las vegas because uh um it got, it got dark and there was really no point in continuing it and then we picked up the back end because i taped the the special in denver mm -hmm. so then we flew to denver and put it all together and got the sun rising coming through the snow-covered mountains and yeah like so it's the most epic opening sequence and then the show itself is uh Compared to the first special I did, like, it's mind-blowing how nuts it is, how, like, uh, and I just thought, this is, this is it. 
so then I, I signed with this new agent, and they bring it out, and um, Netflix apparently is uh, just so swamped with comedy specials that they only want to give them to the most prestigious, pure, you know, lifelong stand-up comedians, of which they do not consider me to be one. And then for the other buyers, it's like, are you kidding me? In some cases, it was just so like outlandishly explicit that people are just like, we just can't show that. And then in other places, they're like, we're like comedy snobs and, and you're not prestigious enough in the, in the space. So I ended up sitting here like on this nuclear bomb that uh, doesn't have a home. But so you're still in the process. Oh, I'm not. I'm not going to part with it until yeah. uh, until it gets the love that that it deserves. And um, for the difficulty that I've had um, selling that as a comedy special, uh, there's another department um, that just does the non-scripted. Right. And they heard that I was doing what I call Steve-O's bucket list. Right. Which is a like, you know. Uh, list of stunts that are not new ideas, but they're just so crazy. I never pictured them actually happening. And uh, now I'm going through with each and every one of them. And um, you know, creating a series of, uh, you know, every episode is a different item on the list. So that's where I'm at. Faced with rejection, I have doubled down and I am going like completely crazier than ever. So I want to take you uh, way back to when, you know, you were younger in the early days of just figuring out career path you want to take. You're uh, 19, 20 years old. You dropped out of college. What do you remember from begging for food? Yeah, I was a freelance busboy. I would go help myself to whatever people left on the table in the restaurant. Um, you could say that I was... You could say that I dropped out of college. You could also say that I failed out of college. You could also say that I was kicked out of college because uh, I was like... You weren't committed to college. <laughs> I was unable to bring myself to class, hence my failing grades. Um, I was completely formally kicked out of the dorms and, uh, and I upped and left without, with, out without the, withdrawing. You were kicked out of the dorms, why? When I showed up at college, within two weeks of class starting, I was on final disciplinary probation my freshman year uh, because they raided my room and found a bunch of marijuana and alcohol. And, and uh, they relocated me to this 12-story dorm. Um, and the staircase was separated from the building you know, by balconies. Mm -hmm. The staircase went up 13 floors. Okay. You know, with access to the roof, but the door was locked. So one night, like all drunk, I smashed out the window on that 13th level, climbed out, and, you know, over like, <laughs> I, I went over onto the roof. And then from the other side, you could just open up the door. I got away with it that first night, and then it was sort of a routine. We're like, oh, yeah, you know, hey, you guys want to go on the roof? Like, um, and I would climb through and open up the door, and, you know, we'd be partying on the roof. And uh, probably would have gotten away with it for considerably longer, but there was a radio tower that went up on, you know, the top of the roof. Uh -huh. And I climbed up that, and it's kind of, <laughs> you know, 
uh, and so I was spotted. <laughs> What's this doing on the radio right. tower up above this building? And, and um, so I was up there and the cops came onto the roof and pretty cool way to get kicked out of the dorms. <laughs> and, and then uh, I got in a van with this guy uh, who was also dropping out. And we drove from Miami to Northern California to try to get jobs at a ski resort. And uh, along with that would come uh, free lift passes and I would be totally rad at snowboarding and become a, a famous professional stuntman because that was what I was doing. Right. I was dropping out of college to become a professional crazy man uh, with my home video camera. And there was no precedent for, for such a career. And everybody that I told this idea to just felt bad for me. <laughs> just thought, what a shame. What a loser. This guy's going nowhere. Could you tell that when you were telling them? I think what so. It is? And okay. I, I don't know that I believed that I was going to have any real success. And, and frankly, I had lost every job. I had been fired from every job I ever tried to have. I got fired from every job. I could not go to class. I could not do anything that uh, responsible people do. I lacked the survival skills to make it in the world. And I felt sure about that. So uh, I didn't think that I was going to have any success. I figured I would probably just fail at life and die young having failed. And, really? Yeah, I think that that, that that was probably my core belief about myself. And so before I died, I wanted to... Uh, document as much wild and crazy entertaining stuff as I could. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, it was kind of like me packing my message into the bottle mm -hmm. so that it could float around and I could exist after uh, I was dead. <laughs> you know, I thought maybe uh, being posthumously recognized for being a crazy man <laughs> would do the trick. But yeah, so, so I got in the van with the guy. We had 600 bucks between us. We drove from Miami to Northern California to start a new life. It wasn't snowing. There were no jobs. We turned around. We went back to Colorado and just were homeless there for a little bit. I, I uh, caught a ride with another dude, and we drove to Austin, Texas to have the government test drugs on us for money. And they do that for anything that comes in contact with people, toothpaste, this or that. But if it's more dangerous, then you get paid more. So we went for the most dangerous possible medical study where they tested on us drugs for pigs and cows called ractopamine hydrochloride. All they knew was that it was dangerous, that uh, our heart rate would go faster. The target for the study was to give us this drug until somebody's resting heart rate was 160 beats per minute which is hilarious. And uh, yeah, I got about 2,000 bucks for um, 12 days. Um, had to give blood on the hour every hour for uh, 10 hours, <laughs> like with new needles. That, that, was, that was crazy. And there was a guy in the medical study who was like a drug dealer and we wanted to invest our money. <laughs> you know, we didn't want to just blow through it. So we went with this crazy guy to go buy a, a couple pounds of weed 
And and in the deal, the guy took our money into the this this place and never came back, right? Like so, and it was uh, like five hundred bucks for for a pound of swag. The guy, I, I found my way back to the guy. Well, we both. So yeah, the guy never came back. He uh, like disappeared. We found our way back to the guy's place. And I'm sitting and waiting for him to get there like while, while my buddy's working on the car so we can <laughs> drive back to Colorado, I guess. Yeah. And uh, I'm alone in the dude's living room when he gets back. And I'm like, what happened? And uh, two more guys come in. They beat me up. I've never been like properly punched in the head before that. And, and, and then I was like kind of covering up and they were kicking me and, and they stole more money from me. <laughs> uh, 200 bucks more. And so now I had like nothing, but there was a, a check for the remainder that was going to be sent to me. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, what it was like. While we were waiting to get into that medical study, we were sleeping on a roof. Um, what do you mean sleeping on a roof? Like what, how did the idea for that come about? Well, it, it occurred to me, I mean, at the time I was sort of all into like climbing up on roofs and looking for, uh, you know, gaps to jump or pools to jump into. And um, it, it seemed safer to uh, climb on a roof that nobody would think to climb up on um, to sleep than to sleep on a sidewalk where you could be found and messed with. Or... So yeah, so we slept on a rooftop. I did. Because you're homeless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. No money. Right. Yeah. I would do like backflips for like 50 cents or something. And then with 50 cents, I would go buy a, a 49 cent loaf of bread so that they would be looking at me buying the bread, not realizing that I had stolen the hot dogs. And then I would go from the supermarket with my stolen hot dogs and my legitimately purchased bread and like walk over to the 7-Eleven and use their microwave to microwave my hot dogs and use all their condiments. And it was a pretty good system. Well, why did it, I mean, your dad obviously was really successful professionally. Right. Why not uh, call home and say, uh, it's hey, a, it's mom a good, and dad, can I have some money? It, it's a good question. I think that the, the true answer is that dad instilled a, a level of pride in me that uh, I, I wasn't willing to expect my parents to pay for me to be doing nothing that they considered productive. How aware were they of what you they were doing They had no idea time? where I was in the world. They didn't know that I was in Texas, let alone having the government test drugs on me for money. What, what did they think was going they on? They just hadn't you? heard from me for six months or so, which is sad. It's really sad. At a certain point, once I blew through the rest of that uh, drug testing money, um, I was really pretty assed out. And uh, I did call up dad and, and I said as cheerily as I could that being homeless was going really well, but it would be easier if I had a car. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's, it's... What did he say? They were just happy to have some kind of like contact with me, I think. And... Uh, they, um, you get the car? I got that car on my 20th birthday, and um, I'd never gotten a license or anything, never had any driving lessons. Um, as soon as I got in that car, I drove 
take Hanadive, and then followed the Grateful Dead all summer and sold drugs, <laughs> you know. And within six months of getting the car, I had my first DUI. And because I was driving this car, I mean, I was driving the car like insanely drunk with no driving experience. And uh, within one month of getting my license back from my first DUI, I was arrested for my second DUI. <laughs> How'd that one go? Ah, uh, while they pulled me over for um, making an illegal U-turn through a red light over and over. <laughs> like, I mean, I think I was just going around this loop. And uh, I mean, of course, it would only take one time to get pulled over for that. But um, <laughs> and I recall doing it more than once. Um, what was, uh, there was something um, funny about the, the, the police report. Um, the, uh, yeah, that's what it was. Well, and, and both DUI arrests, you know, as, as ashamed as I am of even having that in my history, um, they were both kind of funny. The, the first DUI, um, I got, they, it took me a while to realize that they were pulling me over. I think I was just all over, and they were just sort of following me. <laughs> and then I realized, and they pulled over and, and uh, put down the window, and as the cop walked up to the car, before he said anything, I just screamed, you got me, <laughs> fair and square. <laughs> I will cooperate. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they said I was, uh, I was a real treat to, you know, to get along with. How well do you recall being a clown in a Florida flea market? Ah, I remember everything about it. I uh, graduated from Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Clown College, which is you know, a rather prestigious accomplishment. Um, I was not chosen for uh, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. I ended up getting a job on Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines as a clown, and I was fired unceremoniously. I was actually fired by the other clowns in my troupe. They, How does that happen? Well, they uh, apparently went to the, the, the cruise ship Brass, and they said, if Steve-O comes back for another contract, we all quit. <laughs> Why? Um, I, I was uh, generally disrespectful. Um, I didn't think that, that the stuff that they um, were seeking to do as performers was uh, like cool, funny, or, or rad. <laughs> and um, I didn't really um, like care to participate with them and what they wanted to do. I had my own skill set, and it was sort of, you know, I had a handful of really crowd-pleasing abilities, mm -hmm. and uh, I was sort of just renegade, rogue, like rad clown, and uh, I was disrespectful, and I didn't like that. And, and I deserved to be fired, but I also think I deserved to be told that that was the case. I had our boss clown, who was not part of our troupe, uh, tell me in, in uh, confidence. He said, I'm going to tell you something and you can't let anybody know because if it comes out that I told you, then I'm going to lose my job. Mm -hmm. But all of these, there's a clown mutiny. <laughs> you know? And uh, you're not coming back. 
for another uh, contract. So it's time to call up your skateboard buddies and, and try and get something to happen because you have no job. And thank God that he did that because uh, you know I sort of started planning. And I called up Jeff Tremaine, um, who would become the director of Jackass. And I told him, oh, dude, I'm on this cruise ship walking stilts. And uh, I'm so terrified of falling over if anything happens and I fall that I'm like, I know that's what I got to do. So I, I'm going to light my entire stilt costume on fire. And I'm going to have a unicyclist ride through my flaming stilts while a skateboarder jumps over my head and through a fireball that I'm blowing out of my mouth. And then I'm going to crack open a beer while I'm on fire and pound it as I tip myself over <laughs> and crash on the, on the ground. And Jeff said what? And Jeff said, yeah, we'll shoot that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, planned it all out. It happened on December 30th of 1999. This was the day that I met Johnny Knoxville. You know, there's a whole, like, shoot. I flew myself out to California, and I thought that I was shooting it for a skateboard magazine. Mm -hmm. At the time, uh, Jeff Tremaine was in charge of Big Brother Skateboarding Magazine, which had featured me fairly regularly at that point. And uh, when I made this call to him, I was trying to get on the cover with this epic stilt stunt. Uh -huh. So I flew myself out uh, to California with all the savings that I had from the cruise ship. I essentially spent it all just, you know, trying to go be in a skateboard magazine. Yeah. And once I showed up in California, Jeff said, okay, now you, you've come this far, I'll tell you, we're not doing this for, uh, for the skateboard magazine. We're doing this for a pilot for an MTV show. So congratulations, you know, like, we've, like you're in. And then later we found out that MTV is particularly touchy about fire. And they, they, were, they said, no way we'll ever show that. That footage was never going to see the light of day. But it got me on the, on the jackass. And thank God, because had it not all happened that way, instead of getting my spot on jackass, I would have been floating in the middle of the f***ing Caribbean ocean juggling oranges for tourists on a cruise ship. So Jackass premieres by week two. It's the highest rated show in MTV's right. uh, history. How immediately and in what ways did your life change? It was overnight. The very next day after it aired, uh, like, like my life was totally different, which speaks to how much less fragmented the media was back then. You know, uh, I mean, granted, with basic cable, there was still a lot of channels, but nothing like it is now. Being on the number one show on MTV at that time really could change your life, it turned out. What sort of political pressure was on MTV pretty well, soon after it came out to just get there, rid of there the was, show? There, there was very understandable pressure on MTV because here we've got this show, despite its warnings, you know, the, all these stunts are, you know, don't copy them. Kids were showing up in hospitals, like, all over the place. Really? Yeah, like, like and directly because of us, <laughs> you know? I think one kid died, like falling out of a truck or something. Like there, there, were, uh, there were never, I don't think, any lawsuits, um, but there was just the fear of lawsuits, you know? Senator Joe Lieberman really campaigned behind the outrage and, and uh, you know, 
So what happened was MTV started really uh, being fearful, really like limiting what they would show and censoring us. Mm -hmm. And Knoxville... Uh, Wouldn't have it. He just said, no, I'm not doing a watered down version of this. You guys can f*** right off. I quit. And that left the rest of us like, what do you mean you quit? Like, but he knew what he was doing all along. He wanted, uh, you know, he didn't want basic cable television money. He wanted, like, box office movie money. And, uh, and so he saw it as a way to um, make a movie. You know, he said to some, I don't know how it went on behind closed doors, but the idea was, well, if you guys are so worried about kids getting hurt, make a m movie with an R rating, and then you've got that protection. Kids can't see it. So then we can be even crazier, and then we can have a movie. So, so he, he just got a movie deal. It's pretty genius. And so you end up uh, making a, a few movies that are right. like fabulously successful. Um, you know, I, I know when people have asked you this before, you guys have said it's because you're just getting too old. But, I mean, it's kind of bullshit because you guys aren't that old. Oh, um, why, but why, like, why, make, why not make uh, another movie, given the success of the past? I one? mean, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, the, the short answer is that uh, Knoxville's not interested in doing that. Um, what conversations have you had with him about it? Well, there's been emails um, from some of the other guys, particularly one guy <laughs> who periodically has uh, sent group emails to, to Knoxville, Spike Jones, Tremaine, the whole cast, saying, you know, come on, guys, let's make another movie. Everybody wants it. You know, like, I get asked every day, are we going to make another movie? And um, Knoxville responded to the last one uh, with, I get asked every day if we're going to make another movie as well, but I would rather people ask for another movie than why did you make that last movie? You know, he wanted to sort of keep the, the legacy intact. And uh, I, can't, I can't really argue with it. What do you think the likelihood is it ever happened? I would say it's not. I want to go back to uh, Johnny Knoxville momentarily. What do you think he meant to Jackass? Um, without him, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. You know, like his uh, shocking good looks, I think that's fair to say. Like women were, were shocked by how attractive he was. Uh, like as the face of it, he really had this incredible star quality and like just his whole, uh, I don't know, his talent, his, his on-camera wit, his, his charisma, his looks, and uh, his insanity. You can't take away from Knoxville that, that uh, he's absolutely the craziest one of all of us. What about uh, to you personally? Well, I just always, you know, have referred to him as the captain, you know, like I, uh, I, I attribute my success to, to his success largely. I look at him uh, in a lot of ways as like somewhere between a big brother and, and a father figure. It's really? Kind of, yeah, really like um, the, the, uh, the approval, the praise uh, of Knoxville is, uh, is paramount. And he doesn't mince words with me. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. Like, I'll share with him, uh, you know, every and any project that I'm working on uh, to get notes and feedback from him. He has never failed to, uh, 
to really like give it his full undivided attention and, and uh, like laboriously give me thoughtful feedback. And that just means the world to me. I, I want to run through uh, some of your notable stunts over the years okay. and just get you to recall what you remember from each one. Um, piercing your cheek with the fish hook. Um, we did it twice, that piercing thing. Um, the first time was a professional body piercer doing it. So there's Pontius and me and this body piercer guy. Right. The second time you did it yourself. Well, the second time Pontius helped me with it. It was most, yeah, I'd like to think uh, I got it started and Pontius muscled it through. It was, um, yeah, it was 2006 and we were shooting Jackass number two and I, I, I injured my back uh, getting thrown downstairs on a bellhop cart. Um, and, and I was unable to participate in a lot of the, the bits. And um, so this shark thing was really important to me. I was, everyone else was getting all this great stuff and I had like next to nothing. And so yeah, we put the hook through my face again and we cast me out and this time uh, a mako shark was coming for me. And so I'm like, like, I like jerk. And in that sort of jerking motion, I accidentally kicked a mako shark in the face. <laughs> Which I suppose saved my foot. <laughs> what about uh, leeches on the eyes? Noxel was mad at me because uh, I, 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 I proverbially tapped out too soon. He wanted to see it go on for longer. But but the thing was the thing. It looked was, pretty brutal. When it, was it was great. Yeah, it was great. But uh, what was interesting about the leech on the eye thing was that I don't think the leech was nearly as as painful or uncomfortable as just keeping your eye open for a long time. I mean, you get to a certain point with your eye open, you gotta blink that thing. Right. <laughs> and uh, I think what I was up against on the leech bit was, was just the duration of having my eye open, far more than the leech itself. What about walking over the tightrope over an alligator pond with raw chicken in your yeah. underwear? I, I was under the impression that that my job that day was to get bitten by an alligator. What do you, you mean know? you were under the impression? I just, I just figured like, okay, we're gonna do, you know, tightrope over alligators. Like, uh, to me, that just kind of like meant, okay, I'm getting bit by an alligator. <laughs> I kind of thought that was uh, the thing. I, I, and so like, what a treat that that got to be like, you know, arguably an iconic jackass moment. And uh, I didn't get hurt at all. When you <laughs> saw the alligators, did the you think you thing. were still yeah, well, supposed I mean, to get bit? They weren't. They weren't huge alligators. You know, they were. Um, they were like medium size, I think. And so, uh, so I. I mean, I don't know. Like at that time, I hadn't done Wild Boys yet. So my uh, my uh, insight into you know nature and, and wildlife was, was pretty limited. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. Um, they, the thing was that the alligator tightrope thing happened during our first movie. And um, this was supposed to be a gigantic leap from the TV show. I remember when, uh, when Tremaine, um, we first got together. I remember when we first got together to discuss the movie. Tremaine said, okay, this is not a TV show anymore. This is a movie. 
It's rated R. We gotta go bigger and crazier, and so don't even insult me with any half-ass ideas. And to that, I immediately, my knee-jerk reaction was to be like incredibly offended that he would suggest that I would ever propose a half-ass idea. Like I was, and, and indignantly I said, "Oh yeah? Well, how about if I get myself tattooed on myself?" larger than myself. <laughs> that was just like my first, I don't know why, the, you know, but bigger and crazy. And uh, he, he, he'll tell you, or, you know, he, he has said repeatedly that he thought, oh my God, that's such an awful idea. I love it. You know, like he thought I was, uh, and, and I don't regret doing that at all. The longest you've ever been electrocuted before would be what? The interesting part about that was that when you see the police shoot someone with a taser, they're in control of it, and it goes for five seconds. And at the police discretion, they can hit you with another five seconds. But the civilian version of the taser is designed so that you can shoot your assailant and drop it and run. And so the civilian version, you hit the, and it just keeps going for 30 seconds. It gives you 30 seconds to run. And when uh, I brought up the idea of getting tased for my first comedy special, uh, I was told I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is I have a taser. The bad news is I've got the 30 second version. But I was concerned that now 30 seconds is just going to kind of get boring. 30 seconds is a pretty long time. Right. So we did a, a 30 second Q&A. My buddy dressed up in, as like a, a TV show host, like in a suit, and he came out and he did like a, a lightning round of questions, like while wow. <laughs> the lightning, <laughs> the lightning round, like uh, what's your name, Steve? <laughs> like, and uh, so that made it really funny. Uh, the porta potty slingshot. I have this like super irrational fear of roller coasters and bungee jumping and um, certainly skydiving, and so like. If anybody was going to get in a porta potty and be catapulted like with bungee cords like up into the sky, like I, I'm the one that's going to react the most. Mm -hmm. I, like having just gotten sober, like I felt really strongly that I've survived enough at this point in my life that like dying over a stunt would be disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like death and paralysis were like off the table for me. But anything else, I'm in. And with the five point harness, the bungee porta potty. Was, was like safe and sure. That's probably the poo is more dangerous than anything. And uh, OSHA determined that you can't um, be covered in human poo, but they were okay with dog poo. And somehow there's a company, I think in Los Angeles, that will sell you as much dog poo as you want. And so they bought enough dog poo to fill a porta potty, and uh, and that's what that's what it was. It was dog. Pretty classic. Maybe this is less of a stunt. Um, scuba diving on a cocaine bender. Oh, I got scuba certified on a cocaine bender. Uh, like, there's nothing legal or, or, or that should be legitimate about my scuba certification. Um, it's supposed to happen over a course of so many days. I think we crammed it into a three-day period, which invalidates it. And on top of that, I did not sleep for that entire three-day period. I just uh, 
kept doing drugs the whole time. I, I remember like little to nothing about uh, you know whatever the mechanics of screwed, but I don't, I don't like. I should not be certified. Didn't you almost <laughs> get yourself into like real the closest trouble? I've ever come to death, like actual death. I think uh, was scuba diving. We were somewhere, and I can't remember what part of the world. Maybe I, I don't know. We're <laughs> somewhere, some part of the world, and uh, we're getting ready to scuba dive with sharks. Uh, I heard them say the sharks were at the bottom, so I just go to the bottom. I keep going to the bottom, and uh, I don't know if. Uh, if I was coming up or down, or but, but at one point someone grabs my fin, and uh, and you know like I don't know what's going on, and they and when we get up, they they're screaming at me, you know, uh, you mother, you almost died, and I almost died trying to save you because I was doing it wrong, <laughs> like you can't go down too fast or like or something, and I just. I was like, dude, they said the sharks were on the bottom. <laughs> that's where I was, that's I was, you know. So yeah, it's up. And like, I continue to be able to scuba dive. Like, I don't know if I'm in the system, but uh, <laughs> like, but yeah, like I, I continue to be able to scuba dive and, and I should not. <laughs> How do you get the idea to staple your scrotum to your leg? When I worked on cruise ships, um, we would do a weekly report. As we typed the report, uh, the, this clown sitting next to me didn't really have anything to do, and you know I'm typing, and he just kind of got bored, or you know, he grabbed a stapler and just and he banged a staple into his arm, and I was just like, "Oh my God, that's the coolest thing ever!" You know, and we got paid in cash every two weeks, so the next time we got paid. I filmed a bit called The Thousand Dollar Man. And it was $100 bills. And I did like one here, like all the way up, like across, you know, like pop, pop, pop. And uh, you know, I had money stapled all, all over, it was great. And, and I went into my own uh, Too Hot for TV tour, like very early days. And that was part of my thing. I'd have chicks throw their bras or panties on the stage and I would pick them up and staple them. I'd be the, uh, the bra and panty Christmas tree. And, and, and uh, at one point before the bra and panty bit was part of the tour, um, they just didn't have an office stapler. All they had was a staple gun. And, uh, and I was like, oh, f you know, <laughs> like, all right, you know. And so now I'm pumping in. And it might have been that night or right around that time, as soon as I'm doing it with a staple gun. I like I just I don't come to staple my ball sack to my leg. Like that's gonna make me a legend. <laughs> it's it's sort of like kind of crazy to say, oh well, you know that made me a legend. But like, you know, arguably, like what I'm known for is I'm the guy who stapled. It's like one of the things. I could. It's what, like. Uh, what do you remember from the first time of actually doing it? I remember uh, it not being. No, it was. Awful. I was going to say it wasn't as bad as I thought, but it was awful. As I recall, I thought that actually stapling my ball sack to my leg in and of itself might come off as like just sort of disturbing and, and upsetting. And I wanted it to be hilarious. So I came up with the idea, okay, I'm going to staple my ball sack to both of my legs and I'm going to call it the butterfly. <laughs> right? 
and, and uh, that kind of lightens the load. It makes it more light and funny. You know, we're gonna, so now it's an experiment to see if it looks like a butterfly, which it didn't. <laughs> it did and, not. And, and it made the footage that much better because I had done the one side, and now I still have to do the other side. So uh, there was just this you know, hectic kind of pandemonium uh, about it all. And um, yeah, it didn't look like a... Uh, it, it didn't look like a, a butterfly at all. How did you get arrested? It looked a little bit like, well, it just looked like a dead bat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, how, so how did you get arrested for it? Um, one night uh, in Louisiana, I had a show, and um, I, there was sort of a, there, there's a lot of crowd participation in those... Uh, early tours so i'd you know just improvising i said wow these bouncers are great who wants to get on stage and try to run across the stage past the bouncers it's called british bulldog <laughs> and uh there was this kid who jumped up and down i mean he was just like so he want like he was jumping my, my attention went to this kid. He wanted it so bad. And I was like, get on up here. Come on, this kid's gonna try and run past these bouncers. They're gonna f him up. And uh, I'm filming it. The kid, like, I, I go, one, two, three, go. The kid, like, runs, just, it was so anticlimactic. He just didn't get it anywhere. It just, they just grabbed him. And as, like, almost an afterthought, both of these bouncers, hoisted the kid up above their heads and then slammed him on the stage, like on his head. And he's just like knocked out and twitching. I think there was like a report that he was bleeding out of one of his ears. And he was like, and they're like, call the ambulance. Like the kid's just like, not okay. <laughs> you know, he's not okay. Like it was pretty awful and dark. And there was somebody in the audience who uh, had a home video camera and was taping the whole show. And they felt pretty strongly that what they had documented with that camera constituted a crime, or at least a, a story. They, they gave the video to the newspaper. The newspaper said, no, we gotta give this to the cops. And uh, you know, by this point, I'm back home in LA, expecting to hear about it at some point. Mm -hmm. But uh, the cops showed up and they arrested me. I landed on the fugitive warrant, like, like top of the list because I had two charges. One was for principal to second degree battery for orchestrating the thing where the kid got hurt by the bouncers. And the second charge was for felony obscenity because during the same performance, uh, I got naked and stapled my ball sack to my leg. I was covered in blood because of the whole, uh, you know, cut my tongue act with the broken light bulb. And uh, I mean, it was just a pretty like, grisly looking scene. <laughs> As I went to staple my ball sack that night, I said, this is not art. This is strictly to be offensive. <laughs> I mean, mind you, it was art, okay? It was totally art. But, uh, but yeah, so um, my bail for the battery charge was set at $120,000. My bail for the obscenity charge was set at $1 million. So I landed on the fugitive list um, with $1.12 million bail, which made me like the top priority. So they just came in and got me and, and locked me up in jail. So explain why you're concerned about 
testicular cancer. I heard that getting kicked in the balls a lot, like a lot of trauma to your testicles, um, increases your chances for testicular cancer. So um, once I heard that, I decided to be like, I mean, I guess I was always pretty selective, but it's got to be like a really special occasion if I'm going to take a nut shot. <laughs> you know, I'm just closing the door on nut shots by going through with the vasectomy Olympics. What happened there? That was, uh, I got a vasectomy. I heard a joke when I was a little kid. Um, what's the definition of macho? A man who jogs home from his own vasectomy. And like from when I was a little kid, like, like I want to be macho, you know? And I just thought like, it just was in my mind. Like it's like a stunt. So yeah, that, that's the oldest idea on my bucket list. How'd it go? It, it was a spectacular success. Like, thank God, like, it wasn't just a bunch of crazy stuff happened, but there was, like, the payoff, that, like, the visual shot of, like, two days later, and, like, it's just, you're looking at a plum, and my ball sack is just, like, it's like a <laughs> plum, and, you know, just filled with blood, and, and just totally glorious. How concerned are you about head trauma? Head trauma, um, I, I, like, it's in the news, you know, like, the CTE stuff, and, um, I can count five times where I was uh, hitting the head hard enough to actually like black out. You know, I like to like lose a moment in time, um, and and that's that's concerning to me. I mean, especially where the one time I, I landed on, on my face um, on concrete off a second floor balcony. Um, it was just like you know I've been, and then with my tour, like I would hit myself in the head so much. Uh, with know, what? Well, every time I came on stage was with a case of beer to Slayer. And like when the tune broke, I'd be like, boom, 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 smashing beer cans until they exploded on my head. And I would do two at the same time. And every night, like while I'm throwing out beers. And I stopped doing that because in the morning I'd like wake up and I'd be like so dizzy. I'd be like trying to walk to the bathroom. I'd be going diagonal. Oh, you would? Yeah. Like it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was alarming. And so that... You know, and just all of us just being hit in the head, you know, like quite a bit makes me concerned. Do you feel like the injuries you sustained over the years are, are impacting you in some way today? Mm, I, I've been fortunate for the most part. Recently, I went in to uh, have my brain scanned um, at a place called Peak Brain Institute, and they did all this stuff. Um, and their uh, professional opinion was that my brain was far less damaged than they'd imagined it would be. And that more than the injury, uh, residual injury to my brain, that what stood out to them was um, long-term drug and alcohol abuse. And it's, it's interesting too, because I've always said that, you know, I don't know what's been more dangerous for me, my professional life or my personal life because they were both at times like very dangerous what's the esophagus condition you've spoken yeah. about before uh, that's um I don't, I don't even know what i think it's just from acid reflux but all of the barfing that i would do uh in my professional and my personal life um all the drugs the smoking like i, I don't know but um i have an erosion of, uh, of the esophagus, it's called Barrett's esophagus. And it's concerning because um, it's uh, like one of the things that happens before esophageal cancer. 
So it's something that, that I take pretty seriously and uh, monitor pretty closely. Addiction. Um, why did you think you had uh, sex addiction? When I got to my late 30s and I was sort of knocking on the door of 40 and I was on this comedy tour and, you know, like hooking up with random chicks all the time, like it really occurred to me that that, that is not the, the path to uh, like happiness and, you know, I thought, I, I want to be happy, I want to have a good life, and I subscribe to the belief that that means I need to learn to have a healthy relationship so that I can have a, you know, a life partner. And um, I resolved to stop hooking up with random chicks on the road. And when I made that promise to myself, I was unable to keep it. And so therein is sort of the definition of addiction. I didn't want to do it, and I couldn't stop myself from doing it. So uh, I went and I got, I got a therapist and uh, you know, I took it super, super seriously. Like just the same way I did with drugs and alcohol. How much did it help? Um, it, it helped a ton, you know, I mean, and, and like, here, like here, I'm a guy who doesn't know moderation. So when I got in that, uh, you know, that in, like when I was in that intensive program, which was in October of 2013, um, Man, 2013 was a crazy year. 2013 was the year Knoxville was filming the Bad Grandpa movie the whole time. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, and I think I can speak for the rest of the guys in the Jackass cast, like it was like, wait, hold on a second. It's a Jackass movie, but we're not in it. Like, it was like, there was like Knoxville went solo, like with Jackass, you know, like now we have to figure out what it's like to be the Jackson Four, <laughs> you know, like. It was, it was like this, like, I didn't understand it, and it was scary, and, and I was in a really dark place. And at You the, were? Oh, yeah. Because of that? That was really, really, like, uh, upsetting to me. It, like, I just went into, like, a, a dark, dark place. And, and, um, and this is post-rehab, oh, yeah. and, like, you've uh -huh. been clean for a while. And, right. And, uh -huh. yeah. this is, I got sober in 2008, and, mm -hmm. and I'm talking about 2013. Right. So on top of that, I had this show that uh, I hosted on True TV where you know, we would do terrible things to people while they were singing karaoke, and that was like, kind of funny. But a lot of the things involved animals, and I wasn't comfortable with what was happening. So as we went into the second season, I said, hey, guys, I just, I'm not cool with uh, the animal stuff. And so they were like, oh, okay, that's great. You're fired, <laughs> basically. I mean, I don't, like, I just found out that they went with another host. Mm -hmm. So in that year, 2013, I felt, from my looking at it, that I had been fired, essentially, from Jackass and from the only gig that I had going. Like, I, like, felt like I lost everything. And, like, here's this, you know, like, just doomsday, gloom, dark place. And, uh... And I, you know, I was I was acting out sexually a lot on the, you know, the, the comedy tour and the, you know, the whole deal. And I ended up going into that, uh, you know, that intensive sex therapy program, um, making sure that I was tied up doing that uh, when the premiere for the Bad Grandpa movie happened because it just hurt too much to even think about being at that premiere. So I was doing I was doing that, and. I come out of this, uh, this sex program. They recommend a period of celibacy when, uh, when you start out um, in, in recovery with the sex stuff. 
because uh, it's supposed to kind of reprogram your your brain somehow. So I decided I'm gonna go for a whole year. What do they recommend? I still don't even remember why I kept going after a full year, but I went 461 days. And they don't recommend anything like, like, like it's very case by case. Okay. You know, there's not one you know, thing that they recommend for everybody. But for me, it was recommended that, that I be celibate, I think for, for a year. Wow. I went for a year and three months. Which at the end of the day, I think was like just sort of sexual anorexia. You know, I don't know that there's anything healthy about that approach in hindsight. And um, I uh, you know, came out of that and then I got into this relationship with someone who lived uh, in England that was just not gonna work. And, uh, and then I got out of that relationship and I got in another relationship that was not gonna work. And, uh, and then I was at a point thinking, like, I, and I just went off the rails again, you know, like sexually. And it really, I think it's kind of like where um, if you've been sober, like uh, from drugs and alcohol, and then you relapse, mm -hmm. you kind of can't enjoy it. Or, or like it just gets really bad really fast. And then and I think in the long run, that was the most helpful thing for me because... Uh, Cause then, then I was like, then I was just like really ready, you know, and that was back in uh, 2016, and then uh, 2017, I met my girl, and uh, now here I am with like, like really meaningful time under my belt in from both drugs and alcohol and any kind of inappropriate sexual behavior, and I'm just in trouble with food. With food? Yeah, which is like, you know, it sucks like too. Like, how so? Like, uh, I, like, I'm just like, powerless, man. And, and, and it's crazy. Like, I, I act out with food. Candy, I mean, you, you can ask my girl. Like, it's like, uh, it's like pathetic. Like, some of the food choices that, you know, like, just like, and, and where like, like binge eating, or? like, yeah, binge eating, like just binge eating, like candy, donuts, like, you know, like, uh, it's awful. And, and, and to look at me, you wouldn't think that that's the case, but, uh, but I'm, like genetically I somehow, you know, get away with it to a degree. But here's the pisser is that when I went to go do the mountain climbing show in Peru, I had a physical to clear me for the job. Right. And the doctor called me back and said, dude, you have pre-diabetes. And to me, that is the most like humiliating possible concept where I've been this like, like uh, be veggie, animal rights, like eating meat causes diabetes. <laughs> you yeah. know? So for me to turn around and get diabetes would like make me a, a really embarrassed dude. And like, he's like, you gotta like exercise more and you've gotta like knock it off with all the bread and the sugar because you're on track to get diabetes. And in the face of that news, I can't put down the Reese's. You can't? Well, like now I'm on this like whole thing with uh, you know, my food diary and all that. So, you know, but it's not the first time. And, and I just like, I, I really am like, I don't know, I've, I've really uh, got my fingers crossed for the day when I can feel like 
the, the food behavior is you know, under control like the other things. Uh, Mike Tyson, what happened when you ran into him in the Hollywood Hills? That night we were at a nightclub first and then everybody was going to this after party and I kind of found out where it was and invited myself along and you know like showed up and banged on the door and Mike Tyson opened it and I and I was like uh, like hey is it, like is it cool if I come in and I remember he like swung his like uh like swung his fist like past me and like hit me in the back of the head knocking me like get in here you know like like, yeah, get in here. And then he's like, you got any Coke? And I was like, yeah, dude, I have a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, I remember having like uh, like half an eight ball in, uh, in one pocket and like an untouched eight ball in the other pocket, like, uh, which wasn't like, which was more than I would usually have. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, we locked ourselves in this bathroom. and, and just, just you and Mike Tyson. Just me and Mike Tyson. And the year was... Uh, I believe 2005, and um, we went through all of it. <laughs> Him smoking it. He took his cigarette, like initially, I'd never seen anything like this, you know? Like he took a, a cigarette, asked me for a cigarette, and he rolled it back and forth between his fingers so that all the tobacco like fell out, and it just left like a, a hollow, like cylinder of cigarette paper attached to the filter. So he, he's, he started just scooping powder cocaine, just powder cocaine into the, uh, into this hollow cigarette. And like, just kept filling it up and packing it down and filling it up. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking like, it just purely logistically, like that can't work. <laughs> you know, like figure the paper's gotta burn faster than you know, than, than like pure nothing but cocaine. But I'm just fascinated. I'm just sitting there watching, like uh, watching him do it. And then um, I think he pulled out the filter, like, you know, whatever, he just made it work. And then he made it work. He smoked the whole thing. And I was just uh, like generally f fascinated. And I just let him just keep doing it. And I'm snorting it and he's smoking it and until it was all gone. What are you guys talking about? We, like, <laughs> We were in that bathroom for hours, <laughs> like hours and hours. And uh, before we parted ways, he said, you know, Steve, everybody's got you wrong. You're, you're a really smart guy. And then I just thought like, wow, like Mike Tyson just told me I'm smart. How did the two of you then later wind up locked up together in a psych ward? Pure, by pure coincidence in 2008, uh, I was locked up in, in a psychiatric ward, and lo and behold, Mike Tyson showed up as a patient. And uh, this time I pitched to him that uh, I, I wanted to have him hold his fist out and me run into his fist with my face and try to give myself a black eye. And, uh, and he, he politely declined. What did he say? He said, he said I don't want to hurt you, Steve. Um, all right, so uh, drugs. I think you had your first drink at 12. Uh, you started... Uh, no, I didn't have my first I had my first drink before 12, and I'm guessing that uh, it was my parents who gave it to me. I mean, my mom was, of course, uh, an alcoholic, and, and along with that is, uh, you know, sort of hypersensitivity and, you know, overly concerned with the opinions of others. And when I was a baby, mom was like... Uh, 
not comfortable with me crying on an airplane. She didn't want to be like that with the loud baby on the airplane. And uh, so she would give me booze. <laughs> you serious? I think so, yeah. Like when I was like pretty young, like, I mean, we could check with, uh, with my dad or my sister, but uh, I don't think anybody ever disputed that. I mean, not a lot of booze, but just a little bit, just, you know, a little bit of booze. To what? To, <laughs> to, make, to make me not cry okay. <laughs> on the plane. But uh, then I think before I was 12, um, it was uh, like a family tradition kind of a thing that on New Year's, the kids could have one alcoholic beverage. And um, I think I remember having alcohol on New Year's Eve when I was like eight or nine. You know, I would have like a beer or something, <laughs> you know. I think the idea was if you if you let the kids have it's not like I mean whatever they were gonna do it was gonna blow up in their faces. So mm -hmm. I don't fault anybody for anything they did in uh, trying to manage me as a child. Name all the drugs you can remember doing over the years. Uh, my favorites were ketamine, cocaine, nitrous oxide, PCP. Um, of course, marijuana, alcohol. Oh, I loved Xanax so much, and Valium. Um, never uh, got too into meth, but I never turned it down. Um, had some pretty terrible experiences on magic mushrooms, um, but I had a lot of great experience on on LSD, and. Uh, like random weird stuff, I, I huffed video head cleaner. I actually got matching tattoos with Johnny Knoxville of the logo on the can of video head cleaner that we were huffing. <laughs> I think, I wonder if he still has his. He's gotten a couple of them. I think he's, t I think he might still. Uh, I got mine in red, but he didn't want his to look like a weird sore. So he went with black. And I was like, nope, it's red on the can. <laughs> um, yeah, there was like this, a weird like episode where I was drinking like aluminum cleaner, <laughs> some weird thing, and like, and that would uh, you know bring about some some pretty uh, disturbing incidents. Um, heroin. I never did heroin. Okay. Never did heroin, and uh, never smoked crack. I kind of tried one time. But uh, I, I was doing it wrong, I think, and it didn't like uh, it didn't really work. But um, yeah, I, my mom locked me up in rehab when I was 20 years old, and uh, it was a condition for if she was going to bail me out of jail mm -hmm. for that first DUI. And I didn't want to be in jail, so I said, "Yeah, I'll go to rehab." But um, the one thing I took away from that experience in rehab in 1995 was to not f with heroin or crack because every day somebody would leave the rehab generally and somebody would arrive there was this turnover and whenever a new person arrived you know then we would almost invariably be in our little circle you know and they would walk up and introduce themselves to the group and say what their drug of choice was and if uh somebody's drug of choice was heroin they were like, you know, like carrying them by, you know, I was like, uh, we'll see, we'll meet them in a day or two. You know, it was kind of the, you know, the experience. And if somebody walked up and said, my drug of choice is crack, like people would like not even want to make eye contact. It was just like, 
this is how I remember it. It was just like, that. that's not my roommate. You know, it's just like, I don't want that person. Like, it was just, there was this sense that if somebody was uh, addicted to crack cocaine, that they were just a write-off, you know? Uh, like, it was really, really, I got scared of crack cocaine and heroin. But I thought, as long as I don't do crack or heroin, I'm cool. <laughs> Tell about uh, going to your... HIV positive drug dealer's house when he didn't answer his phone? I had this drug dealer, he lived very close by. I had him in my phone as his first name and then everything, like as a, a pseudo last name. He says, I got everything. And uh, so I would go over to everything's house um, if he didn't answer my call. I would just be like, well, he lives close. And so if he doesn't pick up, I'll just go over there and show up. Sometimes I would show up and, uh, you know, he'd be there and, you know, sell me my drugs. And uh, sometimes I would show up and um, the door would be locked and he'd be like, you know. And then there were some times where I'd show up and the door would be unlocked, but he would be, like, passed out because he was very much a, a drug user as well as a, a dealer. And he would inject cocaine, which, like, for some reason means that with his syringe, he squirted his blood. All of, you could see blood squirted over the walls, even on the ceiling. I guess there's just some component to injecting cocaine that uh, like leads you to squirt your own blood all over the place. But this one time when I showed up and uh, he was in his bedroom, passed out, he wasn't dead, but there was, I couldn't wake him up. And I was like, hey, wake up, wake up. And it just, I just finally reached a point where I came to stop trying to wake him up, but I'm in his house. And over at the table where he would weigh out all of his drugs, there was a, you know, a very noticeable residue of cocaine that, you know, just from the volume of cocaine that had been over through this table, it was just, there was a residue of it. And so I went over to the table uh, to scrape up a pile of cocaine to snort it. But as I had sat down looking at it, there was, of course, blood has, had been squirted. Like there were like, you could see like the little tiny little blood, like blood splatter, you know, on the, the residue. And this is how just desperate and pathetic my, my addiction was that I sat there like knowingly scraping up this tainted like blood cocaine and uh, I just I sat there and snorted it you know which is so up I snorted the blood of an intravenous drug user um, I can't <laughs> like that's the extent <laughs> what was your reaction when you found out he was HIV positive I, at that point I had already been through uh, you know I'd had HIV tests so many times over and over, and it's like all these years later, and uh, I just don't have it. Like fortunately, that uh, when blood dries or when it's you know the AIDS doesn't live for very long. By mid two thousand seven, what did your diet entail? Mid two thousand and seven, there were a lot of whoppers and cocaine. Whoppers <laughs> meaning what? Whoppers from Burger King. No. <laughs> yeah, hamburgers. Uh-huh. There's a lot of uh, fast food and, um, well, you know, I would do cocaine. It was weird. There were some periods where I did so much cocaine that I just wouldn't eat. 
And then I would become uh, very self-conscious of how skinny I'd become. You know, like people would be saying, hey, like, uh, you know, you look sick or, you know, because I was so skinny from not eating. So I would, while doing my cocaine for days on end, I would have a gallon of vitamin D milk in, in the fridge. And I would just, just to try to get calories and not try to fatten myself up so I wasn't shockingly skinny. And that, uh, <laughs> looking back on that, that's uh, upsetting to, to recall. Explain why you used to like to get high to the point of hearing voices. Um, well, because it was cool. <laughs> that, yeah, hearing voices was awesome. To me, they were like otherworldly like entities that were very real that uh, only I was privy to communication with. And it's interesting that whether it's with meth or in my case with nitrous oxide and cocaine, like um, I think that psych psychosis which is characterized by, uh, by audio hallucinations, hearing voices, like various hallucinations, like seems to be, from what I understand, like fairly uniform across the board. It's like, so I have the theory that if you ingest enough drugs, that what you do is uh, essentially erode like the barriers between, uh, you know, like other, other dimensions and stuff. What would the voices say? There were like nice things that some voices would say, and there were like mean things. So I would categorize them as as angels and demons. And what were the angels and demons? Uh, well, there there were there were angels, there were demons, and then there were tricksters. Very distinct categories. The tricksters would just put on shows, and all of a sudden, like my apartment, like the whole place would just have like lights just like going off, like lights that were never there, and. Uh, like the curtains would be opening and closing, like, you know, on their own, like where meanwhile there's like barriers that it's not possible that that can happen. I had this skateboard with a, a globe that was drilled to it. The base of the globe was drilled to the skateboard and then the skateboard was drilled to the wall above the door to the apartment. And so it's this, you know, globe that's coming out like this. And I, I was looking at it at one point and the, uh, like the liquid terminator kind of deal, like like uh, the globe. My face came pushing out like like the liquid terminator, and it's my face. And then the globe starts like headbanging, like it was me up there headbanging. There was another time when I was uh, sitting in this big swiveling uh, chair, and the whole thing just straight went up in flames with me sitting in it like full fire I was surrounded the whole chair was completely on fire and I wasn't being burned by it it was just like wow you know and it was to me like it was uh like legit like trickster spirits that were just like just entertaining me you know and ultimately like I suppose I would now categorize them as demons because they made me want so much to keep these experiences happening. And so that just drove the addiction and, and I just consumed more and more and more. And what were the angels doing? They were uh, expressing concern for me that, uh, that, I, that they wanted me to not destroy myself. And uh, How would they do that? They would plead with me to, um, to, uh, to, they would say that we're worried about you, you know, like we want you to not die and, and such. I would hallucinate essentially interventions. At one point, all these like people 
it's regular for people to be walking around my apartment that were never physically there. They were like purely, you know, I was hallucinating. And it was like very real too. And uh, at one point I was sitting there in that same chair that went up in flames and uh, I had all this cocaine and all this nitrous oxide and I was, you know, just like days into it. And um, I leaned over to do like uh, another line of cocaine and I just thought, you know, like I'm killing myself. Like, you know, like there's no longevity in what I'm doing. Like this is just full blown self-destruction at this point, you know, like I'm dying. And I remember thinking like in that moment, I thought the very precise, distinct words. I thought, I don't care if I die. And then I leaned in to do the, the line of cocaine and all in that moment, I don't care if I die. And I leaned forward and the, that same chair, like, like, it was like it turned into a mechanical bull, you know, like some like super strong man was just like, you know, and the message to me was like so crystal clear. And, and it was just like, think again, like, stop, like, no, like, not okay. You know, it is not okay for you to think, I don't care if you die. You need to care that you don't die, you know, like, uh, now, and I'm super clear as well that if there was a, like a surveillance camera inside the apartment, like now, you know, this was purely my own, right. you know, like uh, it was a tactile hallucination, but it was full body and that. Now, when I got to rehab, I should say, okay, there's, there's, there was another one that was uh, impactful. Um, I, had, I had a shoe sponsor at that time and this whole wall of the apartment had vertical shelves and horizontal shelves, so there were cubby holes. And in every single cubby hole was a different pair of shoes mm -hmm. you know, from the same company, it was like a whole wall display. And uh, one night, as uh, you know, I would say the angels took over and I was you know, being intervened upon, there, there was a, a, like a 24-pack of Budweiser that was just moving around the floor, like indicating that it was like a camera, like reporting what I was up to. And like all of these like inanimate objects were somehow telling me to like throw away the drugs, like, you know, enough is enough, this is it. Like the entire wall of shoes like were like impatiently tapping their toes for me to throw away the drugs and stop killing myself. Yeah. Like, all right, you know, the whole wall of shoes was just sitting there ta impatiently tapping their toes. And uh, then when I got to rehab, and when they're all talking about, you need to have a higher power and like spirituality, you know, like to get sober, like this is described as like a prerequisite. And uh, I determined that whatever made that chair spin and those shoes tap would be what I prayed to when, uh, you know, when, when I need to turn to my higher power. And I still, like, that has not changed. Like, not one tiny little bit. What do you mean? Like, whatever made that chair spin. This, like, like, here I am, uh, you know, well over 10 years later, and I'm telling you, that chair spun. <laughs> There's a shoes tap. Like, that's uh, a fact. And, and like, um, you know, that experience was a big deal. I mean, I wasn't ready at the time. You know, I didn't, like, turn around and, like, you know, get healthy, right? But that like planted a seed that that I like lean into. You know, like I like, like that's that's something that for me to like that experience is something for me to grab onto. Like, you know, there's something out there that cares about me.
What do you know about your mom's family history? As family trees go, every leaf on my mom's family tree uh, is, I think I can pretty safely say all, everyone, except for my generation, like my cousins, is, has, uh, I don't even think dead or dying even counts anymore. I think they're all dead. I think they all died from alcoholism or suicide. Yeah, like it's f***ing crazy. My dad said at one point that, uh, you know, given my mom's lineage, that it could be said that for me to have uh, children, the odds of my child being an alcoholic are like the odds of playing Russian roulette with a completely loaded weapon. There's no skip a generation, like anywhere. It's everybody. What do you remember writing in your college essay about your mom in Little League? I remember uh, it said like the eight, you know, like the the school bell rang at you know three p.m. The day was over, and the kid excitedly got on his bike and you know biked home, where you know he'd laid out his baseball uniform, you know, because he was so excited about the game, you know, and like, and it's true. I I was like I loved that uniform, whatever it was. If it was a baseball uniform, a football uniform, that thing was like like important, you know, yeah. and, it, and a, a game was important. And, You'd wear it when you didn't even have to. Uh -huh, yeah. For sure. Yeah, I was like uncomfortable in my own skin. And so like there was something about wearing like that baseball uniform that made me like amount to more than like me just on my own, you know, like so uh, it was a big deal. And um, I showed up all excited and I was in third grade. I was eight years old and and uh, and dad was on a business trip and mom was passed out in bed. And, um, and I tried to say, mom, mom, you know, like it's time to go to the game, you know, like need her to drive me to the game. And uh, she like, she just wasn't having it, you know, she was all like super drunk and just said flat out no. And, and I couldn't accept that. And uh, so I went over to the neighbor's house and um, I asked, uh, the lady that lived, in, you know, next door across the street, if she would drive me to the game, and she did. How often would she drink to the point of being unable to function? Um, she was a binge drinker, and so there was um, episodes that would go on. Like when she started drinking, like it was like a relapse, and that meant that she would, from that point forward stay drunk for, for days or even weeks on end, um, mostly coinciding with dad's business trips. So, um, why coinciding with his business trips? If dad was around, like that wasn't going to fly. Mm -hmm. But if one dad was not around, so mom would be trying to pull it together for when dad got back, like with varying degrees of difficulty. So when the binge drinking was going on for days or weeks on end, how did that impact you in terms of going to school or eating dinner? Going to school like, at times became optional, uh, particularly in high school. Um, like uh, there was a lot of freedom, you know, um, and, and I kind of welcomed it. But, uh, and man, it's really like, again, I was never like mad at my mom and I, and I recognized fully that she was she was just sick, you know, like, you know, I get it. But like the extent of her sickness is, uh, 
it's pretty crazy. And here, here I'm just going to go ahead and, and say this. Um, but when I was nine years old, mom announced to the family that she was dying of uh, lymph node cancer. And, um, and it wasn't true. This was uh, just to have an excuse to not get out of bed and stay drunk, which is like the most f***ed up thing. To, to what extent did she allow you to do drugs and alcohol? Hmm. It was, it would vary. You know, that was kind of a sliding scale. Uh, you know, there, there were at least one or two times when, um, like, she would smoke a joint with me. But, you know, that just meant that uh, she was really drunk and I, was, I felt awful about, uh, even, even then, like, I... I felt awful about that. Ooh, between your mom and then your condition starting to progress, how much do you think your dad was in denial? Oh, God, he was intense. You know, like, Dad, it was so obvious what was going on with mom and, um, and, and even with me. And dad just had this ability to, to, to believe that, you know, to just deny it, yeah, denial. His rose-colored glasses. Until you guys were, you and your dad were visiting colleges, and then you came back from Correct. visiting college, and that was right. her condition was like right. That was end uh, of the line. Yeah, that was that was it. Uh huh. Yeah, we were gone for like a week, and we came home, and uh, it was everything was it was another level. Yeah, and that was when Dad so came out of here you know, and broke the news that he had already been with another woman and that now he was going to move in with her. And I, I never, I think dad could have handled that, uh, you know, in a better way. But um, at the same time, I never was mad at him, nor did I fault him, because the fact was that mom's alcoholism made that marriage impossible to continue. You know, I just, like... Dad's not a bad guy because that happened. I mean, the sequence of events could have been cleaner. But again, like, there was no way around that being the case. Like, they weren't going to stay together that way. You send a 2008 email sure. to your right. friends that they viewed as suggesting possible right. suicide. Um, how did I, they I respond? Prom I, I said, I said uh, this is how I scheduled my own intervention. I said, said that... Um, I've been evicted. I've only got like, you know, this, gotta get out of the apartment. But before I get out of here, I wanna ride a motorcycle through the living room and jump out onto the roof of the building next door. And, uh, you know, I don't wanna jump out of my bedroom window and land on the sidewalk, but I'd like to land in a hot tub. You know, I'd settle for cardboard boxes. But uh, Knoxville, get over here with the crew and bring, bring me a hot tub or cardboard boxes. And if you don't, I'm gonna jump anyway, just to find out how many bones get broken when when I land on concrete from 25 feet up in the air. Like, uh, I'm ready to die. Was how I ended that email. And and now this email that I sent was to like 200 of the most influential people who had the misfortune of me getting a hold of their contact info. And uh, when I proposed that Knox will come over and bring a hot tub or, you know, the rest of it, he had already been in contact with Dr. Drew 
and um, you know various people to organize you know this intervention. What happened when you actually got to the hospital? I was like spitting on people, as I recall. Uh, I wanted to smoke a cigarette, and I was screaming and yelling, and and uh, I tried to throw some uh, chair or something. I was like throwing a temper tantrum and just being like generally unlovely. And then um, they uh, jammed a, a needle in my butt cheek, and then I took a nap. <laughs> Uh, you know, and I'm knocked out and then I'm like, you know, when I wake up from my nap, I'm in the part of the hospital where like the doors just don't open and I'm like, I can't get them locked up. Like it was a cross between a, a hospital and a jail. You know, it was like a pretty intense situation. And, um, being in that situation, like on the first day I had like, you know, this internal dialogue where I was kind of calculating like how to handle, like how am I going to, I want to get the out of here, you know? But because my behavior had been so like spectacular, they changed my status to what's called 5250, which is a two-week hold. And um, I think it was like maybe the fourth day. This guy, another patient, who he said that he was a heroin addict. He gives me this book about alcoholism. But I don't want to read this book because, like, there's no helping me. <laughs> you know, like I'm like, there's no hope for me. You know, but then if it was that night, if it was the next night, I don't know. But uh, I'm just laying in, you know, and I can't sleep and I'm bored and there's nothing else better to do. And here's the book. And I just picked it up and started reading the book. And as I read it, like particularly in the beginning, there's this sort of like, you know, like general like assessment of alcoholism. That they were describing that the more hopeless you are, the better, you know which makes sense like, like as I look at it now. Because if part of you thinks like, oh, like, no, there's hope for me, I can manage it, then you're not a candidate for recovery. You know, <laughs> recovery starts with an admission of complete defeat. You know, we admitted that we got our ass kicked and we surrendered. You know, and so what I didn't even realize is that my core belief that I was past the point of help that I was a lost cause, a write-off, actually made me like a prime candidate. And so it's this paradox that, you know, I'm just kind of fascinated with, but recovery begins by finding hope in hopelessness. Well, why after 100 days sober have you said before that was the closest you'd ever been to actually killing yourself? After I got sober, I would say that it took probably about that long, like three months for, for the fog to clear enough for me to see like the reality of like what I had become, you know? And like the, I just judged myself as like, I, I hate myself. There was one time in particular where I was at, uh, you know, one of our sober people things and, um, and I, I spoke up and said like, all of the work that I'm putting into you know, my recovery, I feel like what's coming out of this work is self-hatred. You know, as I look at like the, you know, my inventory, as I like, uh, you know, like go through this, this stuff that I have to go through, I don't like what I see. You know, I'm, I'm ashamed, I'm like, I feel guilty. I feel, uh, you know, I feel like I hate myself. And uh, I, feel like I, I feel like I wanna blow my brains out. 
And um, this, uh, this thing that I was at was located on, on hospital grounds. And so when, when, uh, when it was over, the, the people walked me across the hospital grounds and, and uh, checked me into, um, I checked myself into the, the psychiatric unit. Why did you end up staying in sober living for two years? I remember a counselor saying some statistic that like 95% of all alcoholics died um, drunk of causes related directly to alcoholism is like the general statistic. Like, like only about 5% of alcoholics achieve long-term sobriety. And uh, I said to Dr. Drew, hey man, like I know the odds are not in my favor and here I'm all in and I don't want to waste my time, you know? And so however long you recommend that I stay in this rehab, I want to stay significantly longer so that I can give myself a better chance of not wasting my time doing this. Mm -hmm. And that is just a, a really crazy thing to do because it's essentially handing over a blank check. Mm -hmm. And this place was like, I don't know how much that had cost me. I think it might've been like something in the, like 300 grand, you know, ballpark. Yeah. But, but Dr. Drew and bless his heart, he said, uh, that's great that you're so committed, but the fact is I don't recommend that you stay in this rehab for more than 30 days. I think that would be pointless. But if you are serious about giving yourself an advantage, then what I recommend you doing is going from rehab into a sober living. And that makes all the sense in the world. And like today, I, I'm such a big fan of sober. Sober living saved my life is what I think. Because without it, there would have been so many moments where it's just like, like in the book, it describes, you know, like, like uh, that moment of subtle insanity where just all of a sudden we just can't think of a reason not to take a drink. Yeah. That's what alcoholism is. And then there's no way around it. You're going to have that moment. And that's why it's so important for sober people to stay together because in a group, not all of us have that moment at the same time. Yeah. So we protect each other from that moment. And without being uh, in that safe environment of the sober living on my own with that moment of subtle insanity, like I'd be a goner. And on top of that, with no discipline whatsoever, such entitlement issues, you know, like just such a child. And like I, I needed the, I needed the, the safety of, and the structure and the discipline. Um, Ryan Dunn. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think his death really hit home with you? Uh, I mean, I think it hit all of us. I don't know that it hit me, um, you know, like more than, than, than any of the other guys. But um, yeah, he was just an alcoholic, man. And that was like one of the last things he said to me. I remember because we did, uh, the last time I saw Don before he died, we taped this show with Guy Fieri, Minute to Win It. And, you know, it's to raise money for charity. And you do these, like, little challenges. And they involve, like, dexterity and, like, balancing, like, dice on a, you know, like, whatever, like, little things. Mm -hmm. And Don, like, had the shakes, you know? He, like, in the, in the rehearsal and, like, before uh, we taped the show, like, he had to go, you know, have, have a couple drinks. And he even said, I'm like, dude, like, what the f And he's like, dude, I just... I just gotta not shake, you know, like, uh, like I'm, I'm an alcoholic. So 
that being the last time I saw him, you know, and spoke to him, and then the next time, like I hear he died. How'd you find out? Oh God, it, it was uh, my phone rang at f like five or six in the morning, and I woke up and it was someone from TMZ asking for a comment about Ryan Dunn's death, mm. which sucks, you know. I mean, I can't fault that person because they had my number. It was their job to, you know, to do that. It was, uh, I, I'm not mad at them, you know, for that, but uh, I, I was at the time. I thought that was pretty disgusting. What, what was your reaction? Um, if I'm completely honest, I was like, uh, a selfish one was like, F like, uh, like that means, you know, like, well, what are we going to do now? You know, how are we going to turn around? Like it, it was um, considerably less than a year since we had the huge success with Jackass 3D. You know, and I think that if I'm honest, my first thought was like, you went and died on us, man. You know, like that f***s us. You know, and that's like pretty pathetic and sad that, uh, you know, that that's my first thing. But I remember it was, you know. And um, and the rest is is it's just f sad, man. You know, <clears throat> it's 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 just really sad. How'd you cope with it? I think death in general, like uh, I I can kind of kind of handle it without like you know falling apart. <laughs> I think uh, like my mom. That was like super difficult, and um, my mom suffered because in in 1998 my mom had uh, an aneurysm and you know like her brain bleeding, and um, she survived it, which is I think rather rare, but she survived it with terrible mental and physical disability, and on top of that she got bed sores which is like the worst thing that uh, I think can happen to a person just about. And she survived for five years in total pain and like, like just cried in pain a lot of the time, you know, like really, and like to hear my mom like crying like so much and you know, just the suffering, it um, just, it traumatized me in, in, in such a terrible way um and like you know with the, the like the idea of a higher power and god like i mean i um really hated any idea of a god that could allow that to happen to my mom you know but since i got sober and with uh you know like the just the this sort of pursuit of uh you know, spirituality and kind of thinking about like, what's it all about? You know, like that's kind of the thing. And um, I just view it like as, uh, there's this saying, we're all eyes in the same head. You know, like um, all of creation is an exercise in God experiencing itself. So like viewed it that way, <clears throat> it's not like God was over here and allowed that to happen to my mom who was over here and they were separate. Like, no, like 
like mom was just like we all are an exercise in experience for God. And so they're very much together and very much the same. And uh, so that, that like, kind of really helps me with that. So I don't know. I think I've just kind of come to terms with, uh, with that a little bit better. Like I don't, I don't think of, I, I think of Ryan Dunn passing and I think it's like, it's really sad. You know, that really, if you ask me, there's really not think anybody that would disagree that he died of alcoholism, you know? Um, and you don't have to do that. Like, uh, I, I've learned that, you know, that there's a solution. So uh, it's, it's sad, and, and I miss him, and I know all of my buddies miss him. I want to take you back to when you were growing up. Um, I think you, uh, I think you moved seven times around the world by the time you were 14. Um, name all the places you lived when you were growing uh, up. I grew up in five different countries. I was born in England, moved to Brazil when I was six months old, spoke my first words in Portuguese, um, moved to Venezuela when I was, I think, two, and I, I spoke fluent Spanish in nursery school. I moved to Connecticut when I was four. And then uh, when I was six years old, moved to Miami. And then when I was nine years old, moved to England. When I was 12 years old, moved to Canada. When I was 13, I moved to back to England. And I stayed in England through all four years of high school um, until I graduated high school when I was 18. The pros and cons of moving around like that would be what? I, I, every time I found out we were going to move, I was like psyched about it because I was like, oh, well, this next time I'm going to be cool, <laughs> you know, like it was always like a chance for me to start over because I was really quick to rub people the wrong way, like all through my childhood. And uh, like I wanted like attention and I wanted approval and praise, but like I went all the wrong ways about trying to get that. How, how well, if all, do you remember uh the report card from your sixth oh, grade it. homeroom teacher? It was the sixth grade report card, and my homeroom teacher, Alice Iaquesa, wrote, Steve uh, like desperately craves the uh, approval, you know, the, the attention, approval, you know, uh, praise, whatever, you know, of his peers. And, but everything he does you know, in seeking that brings about the opposite result. And that uh, couldn't be more accurate. And the fact of how true that is uh, was, was, you know, it, it pierced me. Why do you think you were uncomfortable in your own skin? I don't know. I think that's a, a pretty standard trait of alcoholism. One thing I didn't say about alcoholism before is that, um, that I'm super grateful that I have it so f***ing bad <laughs> that I don't have to like wonder if I need to be involved in all of the, the stuff that sober people do. Because the worst thing would be to kind of have alcoholism. The worst thing would be to have alcoholism just bad enough that it really slows you down, like destroys your potential, you know, like gets in the way of and, but it's not so bad that it has to stop. 
So it just, you know, just years. How many people do I know with just the years slipping through their fingers and just they're just blowing it, just wasting everything? Where in my case, I'm so fortunate that I had alcoholism so badly that it had to stop. And, uh, and thankfully it did. And getting into the solution of alcoholism, you know, treating it. And like I said before, like you have like potential with, to become better than you were before. So your dad, how much did he work when you were growing up? Oh yeah, I mean, like, I think if anything was, it was damaging, and this isn't like an attack or a judgment on my dad, but um, I think that the, the lack of consistency with the, the parenting, you know, when dad was around, there was like, dad would try to like compensate for all the time he wasn't there by being extra like stern and, you know, disciplinary when he was there. And so all that like really created was just like inconsistency, mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, like, what is it, you know? And same thing with mom's drinking and stuff. So um, I either had like a super strict like dad that I was kind of scared of, or like I had just like, it was like Pippi Longstocking, you know? So it was a lunch that you had with him at Ruby Tuesdays before the two of you drove to Jackson Memorial to see your mom after her aneurysm. What about that lunch was so impactful? Yeah, when mom's aneurysm happened and you know we all congregated in Florida, uh, we took a break from the hospital to go get this, this meal. At that point, I had been through clown college, which dad just didn't understand, he didn't approve of, he just didn't support. And, and mom came to my clown college graduation, but dad did not, um, which is no big deal, you know. But dad was like not on board with what I was trying to do with the video camera and the I'm gonna be a stuntman business. And I love this so much. This is so like special to me and I'm so grateful for it because Dad initiated this conversation at that time, and he said, uh, hey, I want to tell you something. I really feel I've done a disservice to you by uh, not supporting you in this career that you've clearly committed yourself to. And it's not what I would choose for you, but I didn't choose what my dad would have chosen for me. And he said, just like my dad told me, he said that, uh, you know, I." I want to tell you that, uh, you know, I regret not supporting you and I pledge to support you. And I just, like, it was a big deal, you know? He said, you're not doing what I want. <laughs> how, but, how, did, how did hearing that impact you? Like, it put wind in my sails, you know? And I remember, uh, like, there was this show on TV called Real TV, where it was kind of like, uh, you know, Home, it, was, it was home videos. And on the, the commercial, they said, if you have any video footage that you think that, you know, we might want to see, like, uh, call this number. And, and I called up the number. And I was like, I don't have footage that you might want. I have footage that you desperately need. You know, and, and, um, and so I sent them the, the video, and they, and they called me back. And they said, yeah, we really like uh, the one where you're on the, the roof of the three-story building and you set yourself on fire and do the simultaneous fire-breathing front flip off of the roof. And, uh, and we'll pay you $500 for exclusive rights to it. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And they, would, they said, well, that, that means that we own it and that you can't 
you know, do anything with it. I'm like, wait, like, I can't, I can't do it. I'm like, I'm thinking that sounds awful. Right. And so I kind of went into a panic because I wanted to be on real TV. <laughs> you know, like I want to be on real TV, but, uh, but I don't want, you know, and so I called dad, you know, and I couldn't have done that before. Now dad's on my team. He's in my corner. Yeah. And I called dad and I said, dad, you know, you know, 500 million exclusives. And dad says, calm down, you know, mellow out, calm down. He said, this is so simple. He said, you need to decide what's a deal breaker and stick to it. He says, what I hear you saying, it sounds like the exclusivity is a deal breaker. So why don't you uh, draw that line, stick to it, tell them that you're not going to give them exclusivity, and ask for a 1,000. So I called back and I said, non-exclusive, and I need a 1,000. And they said, cool. <laughs> and so like from that first, you know, that was like the first like business thing. And dad and I did it together. He's been in the loop on, on everything. I mean, increasingly less so. But, uh, but, but he still has a, a major presence in all of my affairs, you know, and, and I love that. Thank you very much. Yeah, man, thank you. After the sit-down interview, Steve-O gave us an explosive tour of his home. Literally, he had me blow a fireball off of his torched head, which actually, as disgusting as this sounds, had me coughing up blood the next morning. And then we headed down to his basement, where Steve-O decided on a whim to pull the pin on a military-grade grenade. It was a wild episode shoot, and I loved every minute, except for the whole blood thing. Uh, that video clip can be found at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.